Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the Yikes Podcast. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Yikes Podcast, the podcast about all the things that make us yikes, things that can be really overwhelming in the world, things like climate change and injustice and structural oppression, all these really terrible things that can make us feel really overwhelmed so we want to run away from them but instead we say that we need to lean into the yikes, we need to lean into that rather than being overwhelmed by it and transform it into action together and if you could see me I'm doing loads of weird movements, (laughs) Joe's laughing at me. (laughs) (laughs) These movements of when she introduces the yikes are just (laughs) every time <laughs> lean into the eggs yeah and today we're super excited because we have an amazing guest um speaking about climate litigations and yeah like kind of like law taking the government to court because that's what Michaela's doing and some other claimants as part of the page pollute uh court case yeah so we have tessa khan who has he's helping with the coordination of um page pollute case and she's a big legend so mm-hmm. This is a really good one, so you want to you may want to listen to the rest of this. Also, there's information on how you can support the Page Pollute case um, at the end of the episode as well, but also in the show notes. So mm-hmm. please do head to um, at Page Pollute on all social media platforms and go to pagepollute.org.uk if you would like to support our case in any way. But anyway, without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, um, just jumping in here with an update because since we recorded this episode, there's been very exciting updates from the case. We actually have a agreed court date now. Woo! Amazing. Uh, it's so exciting. So on the 8th of December, 2021, we will be taking the UK government to court at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Um, that's the date it'll be happening. We're having on the 8th and 9th of December in London. Please come down to the courtroom if you can COVID permitting, people will be able to come inside the court, but otherwise um, it'd be really great just to have people cheering from the outside um, because to you know, give us some hype on then. But also um, the day before on the 7th of December, um, we will be having a rally. Um, so a big old rally in London, um, a see you in court rally to basically just like prepare us to go into court, but also to bring in, I think, more of a global perspective on North Sea oil and gas and fossil fuels generally. And it'll be great hype. So definitely definitely come along the location has not been chosen yet but it'll be sometime in the morning on the 7th of december it's actually like, i still can't get over just like you being like yeah i'm gonna be in the courtroom to take the uk government to court like it's so kind it's of just amazing but yeah everyone like you know if you can like join like join the rallies and like the demonstrations and stuff like outside like it really helps also like to get media attention on mm. the court case which means like the more people mm-hmm. that know about it like it's just, yeah, puts more pressure on the court and on the UK government and stuff. So, yeah, like, hype it up. And if you are, like, hyping it up from afar, like me, because I'm not going to be able to be there, uh, then, you know, social media is such a great tool for that. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can find the Facebook event and Eventbrite event um, on paidtoplute.org.uk. Or if you just search paidtoplute on Facebook, you'll find the Facebook events there. Um, enjoy the rest of this episode. So we have the wonderful um, Tessa Khan with us today and I'll let you introduce yourself. But we're really excited to have you on the pod. Thanks so much, Michaela and Joe. Really delighted to be on the podcast. I'm Tessa. I am the founder and director of a new organisation called Uplift, uh, which is 
basically supporting a just transition away from fossil fuel production in the UK and uses a range of different strategies to help support all of the groups and communities and organisations that we need to get involved in this agenda for us to be as ambitious as we need to be if the UK does what it needs to do to avert the climate crisis. Um, Before that, I mean, my background is I'm an international human rights and climate change lawyer. I've been working internationally as an international lawyer for the last uh, five or six years. Before that, I was working as really as a human rights lawyer and campaigner, um, but I will, won't bore you with my biography. Hopefully that'll do it. I mean, it sounds amazing. <laughs> sounds, yeah, that's definitely not good boring. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, gosh, there's so much that I think we would want to talk about here. Um, and I guess to like make it clear to people how I know Tessa is because of the paid pollute case, which is something that we'll talk about um, a bit more a bit later. Um, but I guess something we wanted to talk about was um, climate litigation and all these cases that are happening around climate and and why that's happening. But to start it off, um, would you mind just like giving us a wee definition or description of what climate litigation is? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so climate litigation, I think, defined in the broadest sense is really any litigation that involves climate change as an issue. Um, but what most of us mean when we talk about climate change litigation is litigation that's designed to help us advance climate justice. So unfortunately, there's also litigation that you could technically call climate change litigation that's brought by governments and fossil fuel companies trying to stop policies that advance action on climate change. But I think for the purposes of our conversation, when we talk about climate litigation, we're really talking about lawsuits that are designed to help governments and companies take responsibility for the climate crisis and to do more on the issue rather than less. Mm, super interesting. And I feel like, yeah, it wasn't like a concept that I've been like grown up to be familiar with. Like, um, but yeah, I feel like over the last like only few years, mm. this is like a concept that has been like more familiar now to me. Um, like I think even like the concept of like ecocide and people mm. wanting to like criminalize I guess like the exploitation of earth and yeah even like having a law for different natural bodies like ecosystems and Mm -hmm. stuff it's something that I didn't know before um yeah do you want to talk a little bit more about like is this something actually that has been going on for like ages Mm -hmm. and you know I just didn't know what Mm -hmm. or is this like more like a like recent theme and yeah like why are people choosing this tactic more now yeah sure so you're absolutely right I mean I wouldn't have known what a climate lawyer was (laughs) Uh, when I first started studying law, certainly. Like it's just, and it's, I think, a kind of great thing in a way because the climate crisis is just this thing that means that there will be jobs that we need to do that we don't even know exist yet, you know, in five years' time or ten years' time. And climate litigation, I think, is one of those things that's just become a necessary response to the climate crisis that we didn't realise that we needed 15 or 20 years ago. Um, I mean, it's really grown out of, though, it does have a long history in that environmental lawyers have for decades been challenging individual fossil fuel projects like coal mines or coal-fired power plants or, you know, fossil fuel extraction in the Amazon or in other places. Um, And they've been challenging those projects on the grounds of the very harmful environmental and human rights impacts that those projects have. But they haven't been talking about the way in which those projects contribute to climate change. And that's really only something that we've been 
incorporating into our legal arguments in the last decade in a really prominent way. Um, because, of course, it's only in the last decade that we've come to realise just how much trouble we're in um, and it's become really clear who's contributing to the problem and who needs to take responsibility for it. Um, but I think that, you know, that I also only got involved in climate change litigation um, because about five years ago in 2015, I was working at the time as a international human rights lawyer and um, campaigner in Asia. I was living in northern Thailand working for this amazing network of feminist organisations called, um, this is just the most unwieldy name ever, so I'm going to say it once and then I'm going to use the acronym, but um, the Asia Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development, but it's like 200 grassroots, national and kind of regional women's rights or feminist groups who are all advocating for the system change that we need to actually address the egregious inequality, structural inequality that women experience in Asia and the Pacific, which is connected to our economic systems, to our conception of what development is, to labour rights, to, you know, environmental degradation, the lot. Um, and it was becoming increasingly clear to me, I mean, my family is in Bangladesh for the most part. Um, and so obviously I've always been very, very worried about climate change. Um, but living in Asia, it, you know, it's also on the front lines of the crisis. And so it was pretty clear how unjust and deeply unfair the climate crisis is in a way that was impossible to ignore. And I was starting to get a bit anxious because one of the things that I was doing at the time was working on the international negotiation of the sustainable development goals which you may know of but you know the UN mm -hmm. kind of came up with this agreement in 2015 that government signed up to to advance you know sustainable development on lots of different fronts including on climate but also on health and food sovereignty and security and the, all the rest of it mm -hmm. um, and I was just a bit worried and of course at the same time the Paris Agreement was being negotiated which some of my colleagues were working on and I was kind of like hmm we've had many years of international agreements and nothing seems to be changing, uh, including mm. on climate. You know, the first internationally binding legal agreement that governments adopted on climate change was in 1992, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that committed governments to stop, to quote, sort of prevent harmful anthropogenic interference with the climate, right, which is to say to stop climate change getting mm. to a level that it interferes with our societies and human rights and health and so on. And since that agreement was signed in 1992, we've actually emitted more greenhouse gases than we have in the entire course of the time from the Industrial Revolution until 1992. So it's, it's done nothing at all to mm. actually change what governments are doing when they go home from these huge international summits. And so, you know, there was all this excitement around the negotiation of the sustainable development agenda and the Paris Agreement and I was like I'm just not that convinced that it's going to make mm. a difference and then I heard about um, this court case in the Netherlands so I wrote something in the Guardian um, in early 2015 which was just kind of like actually we don't need another international agreement governments already have legally binding obligations under human rights law and other 
bodies of law that a bunch of experts have agreed is the case and we should just be enforcing those obligations at the national level. Um, and, and I heard randomly from this Dutch lawyer who was like, cool article, uh, we're actually making a similar argument in front of a Dutch court against our government. And I was like, that's interesting. I'm sure I'll never hear from you again. And then uh, <laughs> in June that year, um, they won their case, which was the first case in the world in which a national court has ordered a government to reduce a country's greenhouse gas emissions by an absolute amount. So this district court in the Netherlands said that the government, the Dutch government has to reduce its emissions by 25% by the end of 2020. And it was like front page news, BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, like the Guardian, and it was everywhere. And I was like, okay, this is pretty exciting because it is actually an example of the way that we can hold governments accountable for the promises that they make in Geneva and in New York at these international summits Mm. that they just don't Mm. ever follow up on when they come home. Um, And so I basically wrote to these Dutch lawyers and I was like, you know, we need to do what you guys have done in every other country in the world, starting with the Global North, who are the most responsible. So I will quit my job to come and work with you guys on the appeal because, of course, the government was going to appeal Um, and let's set up this international network so that we can support activists and lawyers in other countries to learn from what you guys have done because actually your arguments and the evidence that you've used could be replicated in other countries. And so, Mm. yeah, so that was kind of the beginning of my journey into climate litigation. But before that, I really didn't know it was a thing either. Um, And now Mm -hmm. I think partly, so we set up this organisation called the Climate Litigation Network, which really works behind the scenes to support activists and lawyers to to sue their governments to force them to do more on climate change. Um, We don't have a website or anything because the point isn't to sort of be visible doing this work. And that, I think, that victory, so the organisation was called Agenda and, you know, we won on appeal and then on appeal again in the Dutch Supreme Court in 2019. And that really, I think, inspired loads of other cases globally. I mean, I worked on a bunch of other cases globally, mm. in case, including a successful case in the Irish Supreme Court. We filed a case against the South Korean government, the first one against an East Asian country, and, you know, it really started a movement. And since then there's also been similarly a wave of cases against fossil fuel companies to get them to take responsibility for their role in the crisis as well. But there is, you know, I mean, this has been documented, but there's just been an exponential increase in the number of cases against companies and governments specifically looking to hold them accountable um, in the last five years. So it's much more of a thing now than it was. Well, I got like shivers when yeah. you say all that because it's just like, yes, like get accountability. Also, it just feels so, I don't know, uh, this is me coming from a very not legal perspective. It's like, this feels really badass. To be yeah. Like, We're going to sue the government. government. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's great because I guess I'm also interested though, because you touched on like um, in all these international conferences that happen and these big agreements that happen. And obviously we have um, COP26 coming up in Glasgow. And I'm just wondering, what, what do you, like, do you see these COPs as useful and as a, um, a good use of all of our time or um yeah what are you kind of hoping for for cop 26 as well and also to kind of explain to people so cop is like the big climate conference the un has the big climate conference cop just means conference of parties um and this year it's happening in glasgow it was meant to happen before but then obviously got delayed because of um the pandemic um and yeah that was not a good explanation but anyway tessa i'll let you 
<laughs> Explain better. No, that was a great explanation. And yes, I mean, I know I've just spoken in a super disparaging way about international summits and international agreements, but actually, no, they are really useful, um, I think, for a number of things. The first is that they do get governments to make commitments to important goals. So, you know, the 1.5 degree goal, which is crucial, was in the Paris Agreement, right? And so that gives us some lever to use to kind of hold governments accountable. Like you are never going to get a government in a court or in a parliament in most countries in the world saying that they don't believe that we should hold warming to 1.5 degrees because they've signed up to this agreement, you know, and they've done it year on year in these international negotiations like COPs. So COPs are important for that, for getting those sorts of very high level commitments. I think the other reason that they are really important is that it's the only forum in the world where countries in the global south can really on an equal footing negotiate with countries in the global north for all of the things that we owe those countries. Um, And it's also an opportunity for civil society to kind of access and try to articulate their own demands within those negotiations and to force at least confront you know government negotiators with the resistance and you know our concerns so I think it's super important that we continue to have them because otherwise it would be so easy to cut out all of these countries Mm -hmm. in the global south in particular that just don't have access they don't have the resources or the sort of in-house um, expertise often to just be a part on an equal footing um, in these sorts of negotiations and that's definitely not their fault it's just that's the way these sorts of that's the way international diplomacy works so yeah so unfortunately you know it's like it is a problem because I often am like well do we want to engage and legitimize you know the climate negotiations or are we all wasting a ton of time and resources and energy on that when actually we know that the meaningful action happens at the national level and we should be, you know, committing our energy to those sorts of fights. So unfortunately, I kind of think that we need to do both, which is not that helpful. Yeah, I was thinking the same. Like, I mm. think I've also been, like, flip-flopping in my head around, like, is COP26 like, COP going to be a big waste of time or is it also really important that we engage with it? Like, it, should we just not engage with it at all? Blah, 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 blah. Like, I've just been flip-flopping as well around that. But yeah, I think, yeah, we do need both. And that I think that comes to a lot of issues. Like, it's not this binary or this kind of exactly. like dichotomy of either you do this one thing or the other thing. It's like you need to merge different tactics and ideas. Especially because I guess a lot of the messaging that gets spread around COP and like, especially with like being in the UK, like the messaging around COP of like, oh, we're the climate leaders mm. whilst wanting to approve like another oil project is mm. like, yeah, like the audacity, but like still they're being able to portray themselves at like hosting the COP and then, you know, do, doing all of these things. Like, I guess it is also like a way of greenwashing, but yeah, as you said, also like a way where we do meet internationally. And I guess with this COP, that's what people were saying, like a lot of like like people from the Global South won't be able to come. Mm-hmm. And like that being also like the COP26 being such a big one after Paris, like one of those big ones, that being really difficult of like, will it be like another, yeah, useless? <laughs> uh, it sounds like that's like a tool to like hold accountable and push for like the more like, yeah, using the agreements that we do internationally at these big conferences and then using like political and like law at a more national scale to like hold those accountable and push for 
the actual actions to meet those targets. Exactly, because that's what those international agreements don't do is, unfortunately, the Paris Agreement doesn't say what each country needs to do to contribute to that kind of 1.5 degree ambition. It leaves that up to, to national governments to decide. And so that's why it's so important that we're engaged, you know, as the climate movement in holding them accountable for what is, you know, a fair share of what the, a country like the UK with historical responsibility for the crisis and everything else should be doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I also find, like, all of this really interesting because I obviously do not have a legal background at all mm-hmm. or understanding. Like, my kind of first exposure to anything legal at all is probably watching Suits. <laughs> which is <laughs> terrible, um, a few years ago. And then, like, subsequently, I got really into, like, my specific niche of podcasts, other than, obviously, the Yikes podcast, which is evidently the best, um, is all these different, um, like, documentary podcasts about climate cases, like Unburnable, I've been, list- I've been binge listening to recently, that is really interesting about the People versus Arctic Oil. And also on Drilled, they have lots of different mini episodes on different climate cases that are happening worldwide. And I think I found them all really interesting having like pretty much no legal knowledge myself mm. but just interesting in in how people are using really different tactics to get accountability because I guess for me and Joe like our background in is in like grassroots organizing and campaigning and, and not in taking this kind of um, mode so I just find it really interesting to talk to people who have taken really different approaches um, and have used their skills and I guess applied skills and, and I guess you didn't even mean to go into climate stuff and then you've ended up there I just find it really interesting how different people mm. make it to the place in different ways <laughs> yeah and I think it kind of confirms that we all have something to contribute to this fight you know mm-hmm. um, and if you're a lawyer like you have an obligation to think about your moral responsibility in all of this because a lot of lawyers are complicit in the climate crisis. They're working for big firms who are representing fossil fuel companies and they might think they're just helping them sign contracts and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's, yeah, there's something, we can all bring something, um, which is, you know, something you've both said, I think, really articulately, but we've all got a role to play and whether you're a lawyer or an activist. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, all lawyers should be activists. Just, again, not a false Mm -hmm. binary there, for sure. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the last like maybe two years, like there've been a lot of, well, I've mostly heard about successful court cases, but like the one against like Shell and mm-hmm. also I think that was in The Hague. Mm-hmm. And then I, th- I know in Germany, um, some people just took um, Germany to court for like their latest kind of like climate policies not being in agreement. And I, I know they won. And like, does that give you hope for like actual tangible like change mm. or yeah, like how do you kind of like view view what's going on right now around like climate litigations yeah definitely I mean there's so much momentum as you said there was that successful case against Shell this year alone we've had successful judgments against the German and French and Belgian governments all kind of pushing them to be more ambitious on their reduction targets um, I think my view though is that we definitely can't assume that just because you get a judgment in court that that will change things um, that a government mm-hmm. will implement the judgment or certainly a company like Shell will abide by what a court's ordering them to do. And I think that's the other Mm. big lesson in the way in which climate litigation has really evolved in the last five or six years, certainly while I've been involved in it, is that um, there's this understanding. I mean, we kind of call it strategic litigation, but, you know, there's kind of very classic lawyering, which is just like you have a legal team, you've got your claimants, you 
turn up to court, you wait for the media to cover it and then you don't. And then if you win, great, you move on to the next thing. If you don't, bummer, you appeal. But you, you don't really do anything else to kind of tell a story about the case or get people engaged. Um, whereas when we sort of talk about strategic litigation, we're really talking about cases that do try to have a much broader political and social impact. And I think the pay to pollute case is a brilliant example of that. But, you know, the idea is that legal, a legal tactic on its own, especially when we're going for such ambitious outcomes, like you're trying to get a government to stop subsidising, you know, in the billions, a very powerful sector, or you're trying to get one of the world's most powerful oil and gas companies to radically change their business model in 10 years or, you know, get a country to reduce its emissions by 20 more percent in a decade or whatever, you cannot assume that just winning in court is going to be enough. And so strategic litigation really places litigation within a whole range of different advocacy tactics and strategies that means that you are trying to make sure that there's pressure being applied from um, you know, public mobilisation around the case, that you're engaging the media and got a kind of good comm strategy and you're telling a story in a way that means that regardless of what happens in court, actually even if you lose, you will have put new facts out into the public domain. The public will know about the extent of these subsidies that they didn't know about before. The government will be feeling heat um, regardless of, you know, what happens in court. And, I mean, court cases take years, right? I mean, that's the other mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. that unfortunately is I, and like a huge amount of resources yeah, that's something that I've yeah, like exactly gained more appreciation of being involved with court yeah. cases is how like much goes into that right mm. right so yeah I mean it's like even if you win at first instance with all of these cases you can be guaranteed they'll be appealed so then that's another two years and then another two years until you've got to your final decision you know the agenda litigation in the Netherlands that I was involved in you know was filed in 2013 the final decision wasn't until the end of 2019 and in the meantime oh because there was I, that was strategically litigated. The government passed a climate mm-hmm. change act. It shut down, you know, a coal-fired power plant. It did a bunch of other things because it was feeling mm-hmm. the heat, regardless of what was happening in the courtroom. Um, and I think that's, you know, the Arctic, the People versus Arctic Oil. You know, that's another beautiful mm-hmm. example of a way that litigation can help to tell a story about the climate crisis that makes it very clear who is responsible. It's governments mm-hmm. and fossil fuel companies they've known you know and that's the great thing about being in court you can't lie governments can't lie fossil fuel companies can't lie they have to admit how long they've known about it how they've had the resources to do something about it how they've deliberately obfuscated or misinformed the public you know all of that comes out into the open in a way that it's very difficult to sometimes do in more conventional campaigning Um, Mm. but unless you've got the kind of broader strategy to make sure that you optimize those facts being out in the open like you can lose the impact I think that litigation can offer so it's that's a very very long way of saying that I don't think that litigation is a silver bullet um it Mm -hmm. we need movements and campaigns um to actually for the scale of change that we need in the years to come it's got to be just one of all of these tools that we're using simultaneously and that's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast is mm. like how that's why we need everyone involved because we need so many different perspectives and so many different tactics in order to get the change that's required and something that I found actually very interesting I've literally just finished binging Unburnable which is why it's so like clear in my <laughs> mind but with the people versus Arctic oil case mm. yeah they they I mean spoiler 
if you don't want to know what happens, skip the next 10 <laughs> seconds. Um, but they, they don't win. They lose their case. But it had a huge impact anyway because they had such a big strategy around, especially around um, bringing in like Indigenous and Global South voices and how they were communicating the case. And especially the podcast itself did a really good job of of showing it as a global movement and also touching on not just like this one kind of area in Norway that they were trying to explore for Arctic oil, but also try and touch on all of the unburnable carbon, as they called it, all over the world. And it was also really interesting that um, in court, um, the government's legal team brought up the fact they've had this big media kind of thing around the case as a reason why they shouldn't, they, the mm. case is wrong or they shouldn't be able to bring mm. the case, which I found really interesting because it showed how much they were kind of squirming under the fact that they were being exposed. Um, yeah, they got criticised and they said they're, they're just trying to Americanize the Norwegian court system by making it... In, and they even, yeah. they referenced the podcast in court, which I found, which the, the owner, the person running the podcast was like, that's quite cool. <laughs> they, they even know this exists. Yeah. But it's interesting, I guess, how much... I found it interesting they even brought that up in, as like an issue. Yeah. Well, and I think that, again, is a... Um, and, yeah, spoiler. The fact that they lost is also... A, an indication of actually the limitations of using courts because so the reason that the government mm-hmm. talked about the campaigning around the case is because courts aren't meant to be political, right? They're not meant to mm-hmm. replace legislatures or executives. They're not meant to make policy. They're just supposed to enforce laws and uphold mm-hmm. laws. Um, and one of the arguments that you hear in every single climate change case against a government is that it's an attempt to use a court to circumvent normal democratic processes and parliamentary processes Mm. and get a political outcome in court. And that actually, you know, the separation of powers means that courts, it's just a climate policymaking is a complicated political issue and it's outside of the jurisdiction of courts to basically get involved. Um, And so that's a reason that we have to be quite careful about what, we do in campaigning around cases um, because courts are really, they they are fundamentally very conservative and if you make them feel like they're being made into tools for campaigners, they will react um, badly to that. So, yeah, I mean, governments are onto something by using that, but I don't think that that's a reason. I think as long as you're kind of careful and strategic about it, I don't think it's a reason not to make the most of you know what these cases can achieve in terms of a public narrative and mobilization are you enjoying this podcast um we really hope that you are the yikes podcast um is able to happen mostly because of the financial support from our wonderful patrons on patreon yeah, I mean, Michaela sounds like a super duper advertising capitalist girl, but actually we're two anti-capitalist babes in a capitalist world. And um, by you supporting like the show, um, it just generally sustains it. It allows us to like pay our guests that uh, now and then come on the show and it allows us to do, you know, much more community work and be able to support different charities and just generally, you know, make this thing happen. Yeah, and if you don't know what Patreon is, because I think a lot of people might not know, it is basically a platform that allows you to support creators or podcasts or different kind of groups that you really like um, and you can financially support their work directly um, and it kind of stops us having to rely on things like ads which are annoying yeah Um, (laughs) so on Patreon on the Yikes Podcast Patreon 
there are different um, tiers that you can subscribe to. So they start from just £3 a month and then kind of go up from there. Um, for the £5 a month one, you get a bonus episode every single week, um, which is just us chatting about a different thing that's just happened in the news or something personal about our lives um they're much more kind of intimate those episodes um and we really enjoy making them we do q and a's as well over on the patreon and it's just another kind of space that we can interact with you guys and we really love it and we're so grateful for our patrons who have made this show possible up until now and if you'd like to become someone who supports this podcast if you have the ability to do that um then you can check out our patreon in the show notes or just go to patreon.com slash the yikes podcast um and you can check out the different tiers there and sign up to support this show we thank you so much for your support so far and we hope that you're enjoying this episode And I guess you, you kind of started to touch on it, but um, would you mind, because I've obviously on the podcast talked about um, my involvement with Pay to Pollute and why I've got involved and from my perspective, um, but I'm also interested in hearing your perspective, like especially as an actual lawyer. Um, like what do you think about this case um, and what do you think this case could do and and yeah, and how do you see it sitting with other cases that are happening um, globally now? Yeah, uh, great question. I mean, I'm super excited about the case, obviously. <laughs> so if you're expecting you some really <laughs> academic, like dry evaluation of the case, you're not going to get it. Um, I think it's amazing. It's so it's kind of groundbreaking because it's a challenge to, or it's you know, it's really about the subsidies or the public financial support that the government gets. So it's not really about you know, is the UK reducing emissions enough? Like, should the UK open this one coal mine? It's like a systemic challenge to the way in which Mm. the government is propping up the entire oil and gas sector. And in the absence of that sort of public support, you know, in our analysis, a lot of that um, oil and gas extraction just wouldn't go ahead because it wouldn't be profitable for oil and gas companies. So to challenge that sort of foundation that the oil and gas industry relies on to make extraction in the UK North Sea lucrative and it's the most lucrative place in the world for offshore oil and gas extraction because of the level of support the government gives to oil and gas companies like to go after that kind of premise is an incredibly effective way potentially of changing the whole system um, Mm. of oil and gas extraction so in that respect I think it's it's super strategic Um, it is though a judicial review which means that um, it's Yeah, it's kind of like on the scale of what you can expect out of it in terms of what a court will do, it's on the more conservative side. So in a judicial review application, you're basically just asking a court to review um, a particular policy or act that the government's passed um, and making sure that it's not irrational or inconsistent with some existing commitment that the government has, whether that's legislative or otherwise. So all the court will do is say it's consistent or not. It's not going to say this is crazy, the UK government needs to stop supporting oil and gas companies and it needs to give us back all of that money and redirect it to green jobs and so on. It's just going to say actually the government's acted irrationally and therefore we're going to quash this particular, so, you know, the paid to pollute, case is challenging the oil and gas authority strategy which embodies that approach of 
subsidising, not taking into account the subsidies that the industry receives in um, deciding which projects to approve. And so all they can do is say that that strategy is invalid and the government needs to rewrite it. Now, we can kind of assume that if the reason the court finds that the strategy is invalid is because of these this failure to take into account subsidies, the government wouldn't be crazy enough to rewrite another strategy that's exactly the same. They should rewrite another strategy that doesn't land them in court again. So mm-hmm. that's what we would hope is the outcome if you guys are successful in court. Um, but uh, the, the judge itself or the judge themselves aren't going to say um, that the government needs to, like, get its shit together and do it in this particular way and, you know, make sure there's actually public support going to the just transition. Yeah. Well, I guess that, like, that would then be able for, like, especially campaigners and, like, other, yeah, like, people advocating for, like, a just transition and, like, the, yeah, like, you know, decarbonizing everything. Like, I guess that is, like, a more, like, a ground to then be catalyzed Exactly. For. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah, Joe, that's, like, okay. exactly what, um, yeah, I was hoping I would have said but which I forgot to say so thank you for the reminder no no no, no, like, no, no, no you did I, I think no. it's like for like yeah for everyone to just like kind of like understand yeah it. yeah so <laughs> what it like, does is it yeah it opens a door which is again why mm. we need to have a strategy for what happens after the case is finished because mm. you've got to capitalize on that opportunity that a win would create you know and unless there's mm. already a bunch of people who are engaged and excited about the case and mobilized behind it then we're not going to take advantage fully of that Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess for me like I think in in getting involved with this particular case I feel like as a I guess as a young person as like a member of um the Jamaican diaspora as well but also just as someone who I feel like I've done everything I can to to to, um try and hold our governments accountable and I feel like a lot of us feel like that like we feel like we do all the things that we're told to do like we'll make the lifestyle changes and we'll show up to the protests and we'll organize and we'll campaign and I'll lock my arm in a flipping arm tube out in Westminster. Like, I do everything that we can to try and... And all of this is all to try and hold the government accountable for things they've already said they'll do. Um, and I feel like, for myself, and maybe other people who are involved in cases feel like this, it's kind of just like a last resort of trying to get that accountability is taking this legal route. Because, I don't know, I've had a lot of people say it's really extreme to take the government to court. Like, that's I a bit love of a, it. Yeah, like, it's so extreme. <laughs> but I, but also, the inaction that we're seeing and the hypocrisy that we see is also incredibly extreme. And that is that that is what we should be saying is extreme, not yeah. the fact that we're trying to get the accountability that we should be getting anyway. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, as a lawyer, I think litigation is a last resort. It's expensive. It takes time. It's stressful. Like, I hate how adversarial it is. You know, it's like just super unpleasant generally. Not to put you off, Michaela. You're in for a great time. I promise. <laughs> I'm going to have a great yeah. time. I'm going to have my Elwood's moment in my pink suit. It's going yeah, no, to be great. Be yeah, amazing. You can't put me off. It could also be really fun and all of that. But, um, yeah, but it is, as you say, like it's expensive, it's resource intensive, like it is a last resort, but that's where we are, you know, like we've mm-hmm. tried so much else. And not that I don't feel like we've obviously haven't exhausted what we're capable of as activists and movements Mm -hmm. in lots of other ways. Mm -hmm. But litigation is something that, you know, when it's so flagrant that the government is failing to respect our rights and its commitments Mm -hmm. and what is necessary, what it knows it can do, what it's promised to do, like then we absolutely should hold them legally accountable. That shouldn't be controversial. You know, it's just sad Mm -hmm. that it comes down to individuals having to give up their time and take on the risk as well of going to court. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I feel with a lot of climate action though. It's just like, 
I sometimes feel exhausted by even the thought that we have to do these things. Mm. I just, because it's like, it should be the absolute bare minimum that our governments like look after, look out for our best interests. I know it seems like such like a yeah, but that's simple thing. That's literally <laughs> their job. Like they are elected yeah. to represent them and protect, I guess, the people who elect them. Mm. And yet that is just not the case often. And it really, I find it really frustrating as well. Cause I've also heard people say that like, oh, you're taking the government to court, like just wait until an election and just vote for the people and like vote for people you want to be in power. But the thing is that even our like electoral system, people aren't voting to be like, I want the government to give all these subsidies to the oil and gas industry. Like that's not something that people Mm. are voting for all of these different things. And therefore I think that part of, I guess, activism and and creating change is also making these things visible that are hidden. And um, Rebecca Solnit always talks about it's like making an injury visible is is the first step to being able to treat that injury and be able to... um, kind of remedy a problem um and i think that that's that is what this is and i think that and i think that um part of being an active citizen in in democracy is is being an active citizen and is like like talking about these things and holding the and holding these things accountable and 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 being an active part in that um yeah and i just think that the more that we can in different ways not just through the courts but like in loads different ways make these things visible talk about these things and be active participants the more change i guess we'll be able to make Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, as you said, it's not like an either or. It's not like you sue a government and therefore you don't do other stuff. It's like, unfortunately, we've Mm. got to do all of it at once. That's Mm. the kind of situation we're in. Um, And then, so like for people who are not seeing the government right now, like, and uh, yeah, like how can we like, for example, like support those cases? Like how can more people, not that we all have to sue the government, I mean, might as well but like yeah how, I guess like yeah what's like kind of like your like points of action for like other people who are currently not in court cases and maybe even aren't lawyers like yeah yeah that's a great question I mean I think um if you're interested in litigation and you're not suing the government which is most people um you know you should support the people who are taking those sorts of actions. And I think with the pay-to-pollute case, there's a range of stuff, right, that you can do. There's a petition that's going. You can donate if, you, if you're if you able to to sort of support the broader effort around the case and to pay our lawyers who aren't really being paid very well. Um, and you can, yeah, I mean, as I said, like doing this is an incredibly brave thing and it involves risks. So you can just give the claimants the moral support that they're going to need to get through this journey um and I think yeah like with the pay to pollute campaigning I think one of the things that's been so great is how clearly it sets out the level of subsidies the way in which companies just aren't paying any tax and are in fact receiving funding from the government you know use that information and do whatever you want with it you know it doesn't have to be in the context of litigation but use it in your own conversations and um just talk about it I think which is often like the response right it's just like get angry and use that anger however you feel you know your best place to yeah absolutely I think I always think to say to people with any of the campaigns I'm working on whether it's like the pay to pollute campaign or if it's stop cambo like take the things you're learning from these campaigns and include it in your own campaigning and Mm. in your own life in different ways because we all need to be aware of all of these different issues that are going on and kind of like include them I was about to say something really cringe I was about to be like include them in the tapestry of the action you're doing um (laughs) That was the image that came to my mind. Just because I think that, like, when we talk about a lot of, like, how we don't um, have single-issue struggles, we don't live single-issue lives, Audrey mm. Lord, not me, um, 
we need to be including all these different things. I think there are ways that we can, I think when we're informed, we have a duty to act and there are ways that we can use the information that we're gaining from these different campaigns. So even if, say that you've already signed the petition for Pay to Blue, you've already emailed your MP about it or something, you've already donated, you've done everything like that's on our kind of list of things to do, you can still be aware of that information and take that into other spaces and talk about it with other people because... I really think the more people that are aware of these issues, the more change that we'll see. I think that a big of like a big way that governments and, and big businesses are allowed to sacrifice the majority of us for profit is by the fact that the majority of people don't know it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a, yeah, a big thing that we can do is just make people aware of it. Um, and as well as support, other, there are other cases that are going on, especially in the UK. There's um, the global majority versus the UK government is like a climate justice based kind of case that's really great to support. And if you just if you just Google that, you'll, it'll come mm. up there on Instagram as well. Um, and if you just see these things happening, I think that I don't want to talk about myself, but more just people generally, it's quite brave to be able to, to, to do these things and to even just give people moral support. Um, but make that become active, because I think what something that I find frustrating is when people are like to myself or to, I don't know, to you, Joe, or to big old Greta or, or to, or to you, Tessa, to anyone, when they're like, you're so inspiring and do nothing. It just annoys me so much because I'm just like, if you're so inspired, then actually be inspired and, and change something or do something. And so I think it, yeah, moral support is great, but also turning that into action as well. Um, and that can look like so many different things. Yeah, and I think in the context of litigation, we actually need that to succeed. You know, as I said, like mm-hmm. winning in court, getting a nice judgment on paper isn't going to be enough. Um, we're going to need like the government to feel pressure, like everyone's talking about it, everybody's watching them, you know, that there's a level of scrutiny mm-hmm. on what happens next that actually makes them feel like they're accountable because otherwise they will absolutely find a way to wriggle out of it or, you know, circumvent it in some way. And, I mean, the UK government, you know, I think what you were saying, Michaela, about the fact that people just don't know this stuff, it's because the UK government, for example, just defines subsidies in a way that excludes these subsidies. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's just using this of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> insane semantic yeah. definitional trick to say as it does, as it will say at COP26, as it said at the G7 and, you know, the G20 and all these other international summits, oh, we don't subsidise fossil fuels. Um, And that's because they just have excluded these subsidies from their definition of subsidies, even though all of the other big international bodies like the World Trade Organisation and the International Monetary Fund all call what this government is doing a subsidy. So, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's how it gets out of feeling like it needs to tell the public or be in any way transparent about it. So it's so important that we put the information out there. You don't have to call it a subsidy. You can call it public support or special treatment or whatever works for you, mm. you know. Um, mm. But the point is that the, the you know, UK government is giving this treatment that no other industry receives from, no other industry gets its costs of polluting paid for by the public. Um, other industries have to clean up their own mess. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what matters. You know, the outrage Mm. about that sort of singular fact is the thing that we need to try to amplify and get people, um, Mm -hmm. angry about. Yeah, absolutely. And what you were saying, like, even like your own kind of journey from like international, like human rights, and then, you know, like using your skills and background to like this crisis that like we are facing, that we have that we should have acted on like decades ago. But I think that's like something that, and what you're saying, Michaela, as well, of like whatever kind of like field you're working in, like you can always learn from, and like we should be learning from each other and like bring mm. that 
and I connect our yeah our campaigns and our struggles and and kind of like I guess that's how we learn and like that's mm. how we grow and uh, especially also with the global majority versus the UK government like their approach being so different of like looking at like yeah like being able to live in the world and like um I guess also advocating for future generations and like yeah that the UK government like denying like livelihoods by mm. supporting the fossil fuel industry is such a different approach but I guess that also then connects to like other people working in human rights or for refugee mm. rights or you know migrant justice and stuff and like and that's how we can connect and that that is what climate justice is like that's mm. how we yeah fight these destructive systems um so I guess, yeah, like we can learn so much from each other and should be. And also, I guess there's so many, like, there's so much transferable kind of understanding and mm -hmm. so transferable skills from so many different places that would be, that are so important and essential for us in this pursuit of climate justice and pursuit of this climate mm -hmm. just world um, that so many different people will have perspectives on. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually one thing that I wanted to ask. I know that we are probably nearing the end, but just a question around, this is something that we, me and Joe talk about a lot is like, how much of the stuff we're doing is happening within the system and how much of the stuff we're doing is happening outside of the system and how can we be doing both because i think there can be a limitation to kind of and here what i'm saying is basically what how how much we're doing things that are reformist kind of tactics mm. and how much we're doing things that are abolitionist tactics and um i can see there being merit in mixing all of those together i think that being involved in this case has been probably the first time that I think I've been involved in something that feels very within the system mm. but challenging the system within the own system um mm. and yeah I just wondered what your thoughts are on like on litigation tactic kind of being in within the system mm. thing but then trying to maybe make some new systems and how that can work yeah so if that's a bit of a weird question like, like no whoa. it's a great question <laughs> no, it's no it's a great question and I think yeah that's maybe what I was alluding to when I was talking about how conservative courts are like how mm. confined they are in what they can do and they cannot make policy they cannot create real political change in a sort of systemic way so basically the revolution is not happening through litigation that much is clear. Um, but it's, it's yeah, I mean, it, it has played, courts have played a really important role in all of the big social movements, you know, starting with the abolition of slavery through mm -hmm. to the civil rights movement, through to like all of the kind of more recent human rights and environmental struggles. Like litigation's always been a tactic. It's never been enough. And I think, you know, the civil rights movement in the US is really instructive in that, um, you know, there was one kind of landmark case um, called Brown versus Board of Education, which mm. was the case that found that segregation of schools was unconstitutional. And that was really important, um, but it required basically the federal government to deploy military, the military to southern states to actually enforce that judgment because people on the ground just wouldn't accept it. You know, white families didn't mm. want their kids going to school with black kids and they would you know stand outside those schools and scream and assault and you know intimidate those children and it wasn't really until we were able to change the broader social attitudes through all of the other work that the civil rights movement did all of the nonviolent mm. action that they took and all of the ways in which they were radicals you know that mm. was ultimately mm. what created the cultural change that we need for that kind of structural reform um, and in the US, I mean, now school segregation 
you know, sort of the desegregation of schools peaked in the late 1980s and now schools are becoming resegregated, you know, and that's that just goes to show that what you achieve in a court is so contingent on the broader political and social conditions mm-hmm. and what we're doing outside of court. So, yes, it can be useful, but it is, as you say, it's an insider tactic and, yeah, those systems only offer so much if we're going to be ambitious about our aims. Mm-hmm. Mm. that's a really good example to use i remember learning about that um that case at school actually and then and and the context was it was it was as part of like a wider mm-hmm. movement I'm just realizing now maybe i actually had like a decent history teacher that was teaching me like more interesting things um but yeah yeah you're so right that i think a lot of the tactics that happen within the system i think need to be supported by things mm-hmm. that are realizing that the system is not enough and we need to change and we need to change that inherently as well but i guess yeah we can we can do both. Um, get we you should an activist, do both. You can yeah. do both. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tessa, honestly, thank you so much thank for you so much. coming on because I found it really, really mm-hmm. like encouraging and interesting. It's always great to get really different perspectives as well and to hear from someone who's like done the thing, you know? Yeah. Like you've done many of the things. Yeah, it's <laughs> so inspirational to hear. Yeah, like, yeah, I don't know. My mind's blown. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's amazing and hearing like a little, like a tiny bit about your journey and like, I don't know how you've been involved in different projects. Like, yeah, it's really amazing to hear. Oh, no, thank you. It's such a pleasure to chat with both of you. And um, I guess if I could just really encourage everyone to try and end fossil fuel extraction in the UK. Yeah. That would be great. (laughs) Just do what you can, get in touch if you want to hear more or learn more. I mean, that's kind of what Uplift is about. It's just about getting more people engaged in this insane situation where the UK is the second largest oil and gas producer in Europe and still claims to be a climate leader and has this policy of maximising economic recovery of offshore oil and gas. And, you know, this is just mm-hmm. such a such an outrageous situation. And, um, yeah. yeah, I think Michaela's case is an amazing way of raising the profile of that, but we'd love people to get involved. So if people want to get involved, um, how could they get involved how could they get reach out to uplift or, or kind of what kind of how could people direct that well it'd be really great if they signed the paid to pollute petition yes. <laughs> and um <laughs> and then there's an email address i mean you can reach us at info at upliftuk.org if you just want to have a chat mm-hmm. we'd be happy to do that um yeah that's pretty amazing or find us on well not find me on twitter or anything um, and all the stop cambo or the pay to pollute accounts on mm-hmm. all the socials. Yeah, amazing. Tessa does great tweets, by the way, everyone. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Highly Thank recommend, you, especially. I, <laughs> I aspire to your level of social media expertise. I can't. No, no, I can't do Twitter. It terrifies me. Yeah. I, I and I also have like, I I don't know how people can summarize their thoughts so succinctly. Like, I, I need yeah. like a whole long Instagram caption. That where I add loads of waffle and unnecessary words, but that's just my, yeah. <laughs> that's what I've got used to. Um, but also, yeah, generally to everyone, get involved, especially around fossil fuels and things. I think people so, talk so much about plastic and everything. Plastic's made from fossil fuels. Like all these things are so mm-hmm. connected. And I think the more people we have campaigning for ending the extraction of oil and gas um, and coal and all that other stuff, um, the better and the more likely we'll be able to have a livable planet for the future. Um, and definitely like find different ways there'll be something that you're interested in around kind of ending possible extraction so find your niche and stick to it and do listen to unburnable as well everyone if you're interested in 
um, just plugging that, but I don't even know who they are. But it's a, it's a great podcast and um, will hopefully inspire you as well as to why we cannot be burning more of this terrible, terrible things. Anyway, I should stop talking. <laughs> this is how I keep always ending the podcast with me being like a bit of a mug. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Tessa, for being yeah, here. And so everyone, definitely get involved. Definitely yeah. check out all of that. Um, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Yeah, I love this episode so much. I feel like I learned so much uh, hearing about like yeah the journey that she's been on and like kind of like yeah about the different court cases that have been going on. Like I just love hearing people saying like they're taking the government to court. Like when Michaela, every time like I see a reel by Michaela, and like, I am suing the government. I'm just like yes, <laughs> go off. No, but it's, it's quite. I feel like. I got shivers when Tessa was talking about yes. her career, especially because yeah, yeah. I was like, that's so badass that you so badass, just yeah. like taken and also create a network to yes. help other people do that too, because that's what we need to be doing. And I think we have talked about this before of like how equipping other people to do mm. the stuff is so important. So it's not just on our shoulders. And I feel like Tessa is a good example of someone who has done that. Um, and also what, the, what she was saying about like, it's not actually like there to be like exposure for mm, the mm. network. Like they're just literally just like linking and skill sharing and like, you know, doing like behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, doing the behind the, and like, I don't know, just like, yeah, I love that. And like mm. just hearing about all of the work that she does and like the other people do, like it's amazing. So yeah, definitely mm. like there are cases happening in different countries at the moment. Like, yeah, do support them, like mm. get involved, like, I mean, Greenpeace has, like, said that they might want to sue the government as Around well. Cambo, about yeah. Cambo, so, like, maybe keep your eyes open for that. Mm. And, yeah, there's lots of ways, which we've already mentioned, how to get, like, yeah, involved and support and all of that. So, mm. yeah, definitely check out the show notes and everything mm. and social media platforms and, yeah. And also, I think it was just nice also for us to be able to have someone on who does so much work and yeah. doesn't get credit for it and to be able to, like, I don't know... Yeah show I think show everyone as well that the people who are doing the most work aren't often the people you see doing yes. the work they're doing it like quietly mm-hmm. in the background it's people like Tessa but also they're, they're like a, loads of Tessas out there doing yeah. really great important work and maybe don't get the limelight um yeah and do like you know like reading documents like all day every day long. like dry government <laughs> like I mean yeah big up all of them because <laughs> I'm, uh, your joke's like it can never be me <laughs> no, i read these academic of, like dry yeah. papers but government stuff is like a whole nother thing mm, yeah. i i thought about it for like a sec a hot second and i was like no <laughs> i could see you like no I, I could definitely see you in a courtroom no i i probably like no i'm not gonna say it <laughs> <laughs> okay well anyway um thank you to the wonderful finley moet um for editing this episode and doing all the sound magic for it um you can find him as finley Mo on all social media it'll be in the show notes as usual as well um thanks to joe for co-hosting this episode with me you can find um joe's social media it's at trees and peace um on instagram or on twitter it's at josephine becker that's correct isn't it yeah um yeah you know you can, you can find me at michaela loach forever um, and the yikes pot um uh, the yikes podcast on instagram and, and the Yags pod on Twitter. Yes. And uh, please review and share and, mm-hmm. yeah, leave reviews and stars and all of that on all of the platforms you listen on. And thank you so much to our patrons for making all of this work possible. You are all best beans. And we'll be back in two weeks. Two weeks dos semanas, for another episode. See you then. Bye. Bye.